Thank you for checking out the Life Church Utah podcast. We hope it's a blessing to you. If you'd like to give to Life Church, you can do so by texting the word LC Give to 43506. And now, a message from one of our pastors. So here's a couple of things. So last week we started talking about uh, generosity and giving. And we're, we're talking about this idea of, of what it means to return to the Lord what is already his. Because we don't own any of this anyway, right? This is all God's. Uh, even the ability to, uh, to acquire finances is all God. So a great scripture verse that um, I need to pull out here really quickly. Found in um, Luke chapter 12, it says, then Jesus said to them, to the disciples, says, watch out, guard yourselves against all kind of greed. After all, one's life isn't determined by one's possessions. Your life is not determined by what you have. Not at all. There's another version that says, uh, even the wealthy, their possessions can't save them. Right. And so so we have all these things around us, but our sustenance, our hope, uh, our life is not wrapped up in them. That's not where it is. Our life should be wrapped up in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So when we give, uh, there's a scripture verse I'll be sharing a little bit in just a moment. Um, but th- there's a scripture that says God loves a cheerful, uh, cheerful giver. Right. And, and he's happy to receive funds from grumpy people as well. I mean, that's not in there, but that's that's definitely it. So why are we grumpy at times when, when we need to give? Because there are so many benefits. Can I tell you really quickly, some studies have been done about generosity and people who give. And can I tell you some, some of the things that happen? Here, here are these. Uh, it lowers your blood pressure when you give. How many of you have had high, high blood pressure? Little HIPAA law. We're breaking some HIPAA law things right now, I'm sure. <laughs> Okay, right? It's, it, it, it impacts by lowering your blood pressure when you give. Lower risk of dementia, less anxiety and depression, redu- reduce cardiovascular risk and overall greater happiness when we give. Who would have thought, right? And I think God is looking out for us when we give because there are so many incredible benefits that happen in our life physically, right? Emotionally, mentally happen when we give. In fact, they did the study. Of, um, of people that were given, I think it was in the UK, and they gave people a certain amount of money, just a small amount, say like $10 or something like that, and given to them, and then they were told, you can do whatever you want to with, with this money. We're going to call you at the end of the day to find out how you're feeling and kind of what, what you did with that. And so they gave this whole group of people a little bit of money, and then they called at the end of the day. And for those folks who took the money for themselves and treated themselves uh, because somebody was generous enough to give them some finances. Uh, They treated themselves, and the study showed that there was no measurable difference in their life at all. They weren't happier. They weren't more sad. It was just kind of eh, whatever. But for those folks who gave away what they had received and they gave to somebody who didn't have or they blessed somebody else, when they got that call at the end of the day, uh, the vast, vast majority of them reported being happier, having a, having a greater sense of well-being in their life simply by that one act of giving. And uh, one of the uh, professors at the end of it, at the end of this thing, he says, I have one simple message to offer, and it's this. Now, remember, this is coming from somebody who, you know, is not a Christian, doesn't understand all that, but this was his way. I have one simple message to offer, and it's this. Giving is the most potent force on the planet. 
And that was dealing with teenagers. When they learn to give, they become the most potent force on the planet. Just a wonderful thing. And so this is the opportunity that we have as the people of God to return what's already his anyway and give to him. So a couple of ways we do that, either in person like we are right now. Uh, you can do it online. And can I give a couple of things about online? Sorry, we're taking a little bit extra time here, uh, but just really want to want to hit this. Um, so online, you can give, you know, like a one-time gift or re recurring gifts. If you go to Life Church Utah, Com. And when you go there, there's a couple of different ways you can give recurring gifts. One of those is with a credit card, which is fine. But can I tell you the best way to do it is through an automatic withdrawal from a bank account. And the reason for that is just like at a, at a grocery store, just like anywhere else, uh, we get charged fees for the use of a credit card just like you do, called interest, <laughs> right? And so we get charged fees for the processing of it. The fees on an automatic withdrawal are far, far, far less. And so if you want more of the finances that you're entrusting uh, uh, for the work of the Lord, man, the ACH is the way to go. You can do that online. Another way you can do that is through text giving. You can see the instructions for that in the bulletin. And sorry I took so much time on this, but I really want us to understand how important this aspect of our worship truly is. And so, Father, we thank you for today. Ask for your blessing on this offering as it's given, including those who've already given. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that. And uh, Lord, just have your way for the remainder of our time this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Thank you for uh, letting me take a few minutes to do that. Last week, uh, a scripture verse that we shared over and over and over again was Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. It'll be up there for you. And it says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or another way to say it, your heart follows your treasure. Your heart follows your treasure. Um, why do we behave the way that we behave? Is it because we have to behave a certain way because of social norms, or do we behave simply because that's just the way that we behave? Um, now, I love Shelly. Like, really love Shelly. For those who don't know, Shelly's my wife. Okay, just thought some <laughs> strange, weird crush. Okay, um, so... Uh, so I love, I should preface, I love my wife, Shelly, um, a whole lot. Uh, and because I do, I act a certain way when I'm around her. I also act a certain way when I am not around her. But that's not to say that I act contrary to how I feel about her or how I love her when I'm not with her. My whole life is wrapped up in behaving a certain way because I love my wife and I want to behave a certain way. I don't feel like I have to respond in a certain way. When we first met, it was super fun and met at Central Bible College, and she was uh, trying to find out about uh, a discipleship program I had been a part of called Master's Commission. And so her ex-boyfriend invited her to come uh, to the school, and uh, so we got a chance to sit down. And on that day, and I don't know, guys, if you've ever had this opportunity. I, I don't know if girls are like this because I'm not one. Um, and so, so, uh, so we sat down, and I was... Uh, I think uh, like grandparents would say, acting a fool, right? That's kind of the, the phrase because I was giddy. I was like just over the top, like goofy in this moment because there before me was this absolute stunning beauty. I mean, I was 19. I think she was probably 17 because she hadn't graduated quite yet. And I was just like smitten by her in that moment. And I acted like a fool, 
but it was, it was in my heart. That was just the way that I had to act. I wasn't faking. I was just overwhelmed with, uh, with the way that she was. And now we've been married for 27 and a half years. How do, okay, that, that's good. So married 27 and a half years. How do I act around her now? I'm reserved, right? I would like to think that I am still smitten by my wife that I am still at moments goofy and that head over heels kind of thing there, not because I have to, but because it just flows out of this natural relationship uh, that I have with her. She's down in the kids area uh, helping out down there today. And those are the things I love about her, right? I mean, she wants to serve and just be a part of what God is doing. And it just drives me crazy in a wonderful way. <laughs> and then when I met her like three months later, I had no idea who she was. So that was, uh, that was great. So when she came to Bible college, that's really exciting. Um, but we figured all that out and we eventually got married, so that's cool. All right, so all of us are confronted with this whole idea of how we act. Like, are we supposed to act a certain way or do we just act a certain way because that's who we are? Um, kind of from the perspective of being a law-abiding citizen, uh, Jamie Foxx notwithstanding. So why do we obey the law? Right, so we've got laws all around us. How many of you have ever broken a law? And, okay, good, thank you. We have some police officers here who would love to talk to you today. So do we, do we follow the law out of a sense of obligation or do we follow the law simply because it's what we do? Because we are law-abiding citizens. It just naturally flows from us. I hope we do, right? I've heard it said rules are meant to be broken. How many of you have lived part of your life by that uh, and that doesn't work too well? I remember doing that in high school, junior high. Yeah, it doesn't work too well. Something about shoplifting and against the law and, you know, so. Sometimes it didn't end up so well for me. Speed limits. Law or suggestion? Do we have an obligation to follow them or do we follow them simply because we recognize that they are there uh, to serve a purpose for our well-being? Especially on the back roads when nobody is there and it's late at night, right? Okay. Waiting for that long red light. Oh, and by the way, Salt Lake, what is up with your driving? Oh, my word. So... All, those of you who know, we came from Illinois most recently. And so uh, when we lived in Illinois, incredibly high tax state, right? I mean, the taxes on my home were $8,000 a year just for the taxes on the home. Okay, that's very exciting. How's that? And so, and you know, and very excited about that. And, and get here to Utah, I'm going, oh, this is beautiful, man. Lower taxes and wonderful. But you know what I found out? Because of the way you all drive... My insurance was three times higher here in Salt Lake than it was in Illinois of all places. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate that. So waiting at a long red light in the middle of the night, do you wait there because the law says you do and you feel obligated or do you not wait there because your heart goes, oh, nobody will know. <laughs> Why do we do the things that we do? So this big idea of motivation starts to creep into many areas, many areas of our life. Obligation in and of itself is not bad, right? Because there are certain social obligations we have in the way that we act in you know, social settings that's really, really good. It's becoming more and more of a lost art, unfortunately, because of all the social media and all that stuff out there. But there's still a modicum of decency that shows up uh, a measurable percent of the time when we interact with people around us. But it gets down to the central idea of I have to versus I want to or I have to versus I get to. 
And this shows up in our lives as followers of Christ, um, and it's a question that uh, if you've been in the church for a while, you might recognize this next uh, kind of competition, law versus grace. You may have ever heard that kind of discussion before. That's the law, and this is versus grace, and how do we uh, kind of navigate those two things? So for those who are new to faith, new to this uh, whole relationship with Jesus thing, um, and new to the Bible, uh, the Bible is kind of broken up into two parts, and there are times when we oversimplify it, and we say that the old part of it, so the first uh, two-thirds of the Bible, is called the Old Testament. And there's much in the Old Testament about Old Testament law and do's and don'ts and things that you need to live by. And so that's the law. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus shows up on the scene. And it's like all of a sudden, it's only grace in the New Testament, and you can just kind of do whatever you want to, and that's the New Testament. Uh, Let me tell you, that's not exactly the way it is. Uh, and grace is not always as easy as we think it is. Uh, in fact, there are some, some things that say grace is much harder to live under uh, than the law. But um, so, so this idea in the Old Testament that it's law, New Testament it's grace, and those two are totally separated and divided, especially when it comes to giving. Right? Because we have this struggle that the law says one thing. The law says that we should tithe. I mean, that, that's, that's the law. And so people will point and say, that's the Old Testament talking. We are today living under grace, so the tithe does not apply to us at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 8. Exhibit number 1. This is the New Testament, and this is Paul talking. The point is this. He's talking to a church who had just given an incredible gift for another congregation that they had never visited before in Jerusalem. So Corinth is up there in Greece and or Macedonia, and they're making their way down with this gift all the way to Jerusalem. The church in Corinth has no idea of those people. They just knew that there was a need and they wanted to give to it. So the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. That's where we get that that verse from. And it says, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. And so those who understand this idea of law versus great will point to this verse and say about this verse some things that might not be true. And the cool thing is, is Paul, he's, you know, he's, he's looking at this church doing this incredible gift. And, and I think he's honing in on a couple things. This gift that was given was not done out of compulsion. Um, it was not done out of reluctance. But it was a decision of generosity from a heart that was overflowing from the grace of God at work within the lives of the believers in the church at Corinth. And so this gift was given in an incredible way. So this is in the New Testament. And so it feels pretty comfortable. And so we can point to this and we can go, well, see here, what Paul is saying is that if I don't want to give, I don't have to give. Right? I mean, that's what it appears to be like in this moment. But is this right? Is that at all what this is saying? Is, is it like saying under grace, there's no obligation to give and, you know, it's only about how I'm feeling in the moment or... 
is the law saying something different? Does the, what does the law say about all this? So we're going to dig in a little bit here in the Old Testament. And we're going to find out some things, I hope, that change our view of the law and the tithe. And when the tithe came into being. So we come to tithe at this point. And the reason we do it, the reason that we tithe, um, or the reason that we get to this point is because it feels like tithe can be an obligation rather than a desire that we have on our own. And I've certainly operated under that at times in my life when I was younger. Uh, my first, I, I worked at Godfather's Pizza when there was one, I think, 7th East and 90th South or something like that. I worked there at that Godfather's Pizza. My first job, probably three fifty-five an hour, something like that. Man, making the bank, baby. And, um, you know, had a Bronco at that time, that my old one, you know, like eight miles to the gallon. But it was only, you know, 40 cents a gallon for gas, so no big deal, or 50, whatever it was. Um, but tithing at that point, man, it felt like an obligation, Mom and dad at that point, when my, when my mom and dad were still together, I was that kid, you know, with that, uh, with the check, and I would put it in there, uh, my parents' check, and I was more than happy to put their money in the offering rather than my own. And so learning about the tithe, so it feels like an obligation. So does the law state that we're under obligation to tithe? Do we have to tithe? Well, there's this interesting story in Genesis chapter 14 that happens with this guy named Abram. His name eventually is changed to Abraham. And, and Abraham is uh, kind of the father of our faith in a lot of ways. It started with him. God called Abraham and is from Abraham. Then you got Isaac and Jacob. And then that line is traced all the way to the birth of Jesus Christ. So without Abraham taking these very first steps of faith towards God, I'm not sure we would have Christianity as we know it today. And so Abraham, we trace our roots of faith back to him. And so Abraham is at this point living in, um, living in what is now the promised land. At that point, it was just the land that God had showed him, uh, a lot of promises associated with it. But they're living in the land, and there are other clans that are powerful that are living outside of where Abraham was living. And from time to time, battles would happen. And uh, there would be arguments between neighbors, and then they would go to war against one another. And Abraham has this moment where he is beginning to go to war against another couple of those clans or another couple of those small nation states. And he gathers together a couple of other people. They go to war and they end up winning this war. And so I'm getting to tithe here in just a second. All right, you're going, where is this guy going with this? I just got to set it up correctly. And uh, at, at one point, two kings come to Abraham after the victory. And they, they come and they meet Abraham and begin talking with him. One of these king's names is Melchizedek. Everybody say that name, Melchizedek. It's a great name if you're pregnant right now, great name for a son. That would be fantastic. Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is not just a king, but he's also a priest. So there's something very special about this guy. And so Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 through 20. Now, one thing to make note of, this is about 400 years before Moses receives the covenant from God on uh, Mount Sinai. This is 400 plus years before the law is even given to the nation of Israel. nation of Israel isn't even born yet. So there's no law, nothing at all like that. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine as a celebration. He was priest to God most high. 
he blessed him. He blessed Abram and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who's handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, a tenth of everything is called the tithe. So it says, Abram gave a tenth of everything. Now remember, this is before the law. So what motivated Abram to do this? He didn't have to. There wasn't anything written down anywhere that he had to do this. He wasn't trying to manipulate this king because they were, in essence, equals in a lot of ways. And so there wasn't any of that going on. It wasn't trying to buy somebody off. Why would he do this? In the New Testament book of Hebrews, um, well, Melchizedek goes off the history, like history of pages of history. We don't hear anything more about Melchizedek after this uh, point until we get to the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the author makes a really interesting point. He says about Melchizedek, he says Melchizedek is, uh, is, is like a type of Christ or represents Jesus in the Old Testament. And there are some scholars who think that Melchizedek is actually something called, and you can take this home and, and tell your friends about it, uh, this is a wonderful word, a theophany. Okay, a theophany means a uh, time when Jesus shows up in the Old Testament before the New Testament. And so some scholars think that Melchizedek is Jesus um, in, in a slightly different form. It's kind of weird um, and it uh, doesn't really matter. But all that matters is the fact that Abram gave to Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe, before there was law. And so the author of Hebrews is making the point that um, when you would give your tithes back in the time of Jesus, when you would give your tithes when there was a, the, the temple was still around, uh, they would give the 10% uh, to the Levites. They were the ones who would receive the tithe. And it says in chapter 7, verse 8 of Hebrews, in the one case, mortal men receive tithes. Mortal meaning they're going to die eventually, Right? So there's got to be a motivation beyond just giving the tithes. The people who are going to die, there's something more to it. It says, but in the other, he of whom it is witness that he is alive receives them. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that when you're giving your tithes back in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when you're giving your tithes, you're not giving them to mortal man. There's a bigger picture happening underneath. In this case... He's using Melchizedek to prove the point that they are giving to Jesus. That's where the tithe is being given to. Now, that blows my mind. It blows my mind because every time that I give, I need to recognize that when I give my tithe, I'm not giving to an institution. I'm not giving to a group of people. I am giving my tithes and trusting them to the Lord. And then obviously we as a church, other organizations have a, a tremendous responsibility to use that in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ. So it's kind of like Abraham to Melchizedek. It's not about God telling you to give. It's about the willingness to recognize it's all God's anyway. And Abram, out of the generosity of his heart, out of, out of a, out of a grace-filled existence, he decides to give. And so it reveals it's not about the law guiding us, but grace leading us. It's not about the law guiding us, but it's grace leading us to give. 
It's all about grace. It has nothing to do with law. It's all about our hearts, right? For your treasure is that your heart will be also. So tithing is an opportunity for blessing and abundance when we trust God with our finances. So is it only then in the Old Testament that we see this kind of thing in operation? No, of course not. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 9. The story that I'm going to tell you next is a story that is actually in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the very few stories that makes it to all four of the Gospels. So therefore, it must be important. And I believe that it is. And you're going to recognize it as I start reading through this. It says, when the apostles returned, so Jesus had sent them on a short-term missions trip, and they come back and are telling the stories about uh, what they had seen on this short-term missions trip. It says, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. I love that about Jesus. Wherever Jesus was, crowds followed. And wherever Jesus was, he took time to be with the crowds, to minister to them. And this particular case says that he healed those who needed healing. Folks, that's one reason why every time we gather together on Sunday mornings, we have an opportunity to pray for and believe for in faith that God is going to heal whatever ailment you've got, relationships, marriages, whatever it is, we believe God can heal. And thus the reason why we pray on Sunday mornings for that to take place. Because we believe Jesus is here, right? Amen. So late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him. Uh, let, me read, let me read this. This is going to be my version of it. Um, Jesus, disciple comes to Jesus. Jesus, you have been talking a really long time today, buddy. You need to kind of wrap it up. Uh, have the altar call, and uh, we've got, you know, we got dinner cooking <laughs> at home, and we can't get there because this is a remote place. Nobody's going to make it home in time. Everything's going to be burned. So, Jesus, you got to wrap this thing up so people can get home. Sort of what they said. <laughs> he said, send the crowds away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> And then I think what they would do is go like this, Jesus, do you see who's here? They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. You, you laugh. This, this is how Jesus got it too, vacuum-packed, frozen tilapia out of the Sea of Galilee, <laughs> right? So, so two fish and five loaves. Jesus, okay, so we have, you know, roughly 280 or so here this morning, 300 or so uh, that are here this morning. Would five loaves and two fish feed this group here this morning? Ain't going to happen. And so G the disciples are going, Lord, there are 5,000 men that are here, and they're grumpy and hungry. Anybody get hangry? Okay, that was happening. They loved his messages, but they were getting hangry, kind of like you guys are right now because it's a little bit afternoon, okay? And so, so they're, they're going, Jesus, we got to do something about this. Jesus said, you feed them. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. 
And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, those 5,000 men were accompanied by women and children as well. They just didn't show up in that count. Uh, but scholars say that there were potentially up to about 15,000 people gathered there on that day. Five loaves, two fish. Where'd they get these five loaves and two fish? Well, multiplication principle number one, there's a couple of these, there's two of them. Multiplication principle number one, something must be blessed before it can multiply. So the key here is the action of Jesus over what had been given to him. It started with Jesus blessing it. He said, we only have the five loaves and two fish. Where'd they even get that? A little boy, uh, at that point when Jesus said, you feed him, um, John chapter 6 kind of gives a little more detail to this. It says that Andrew went out looking for some food, and he finds a little boy. My guess is other people might have had a little bit, and they're going, no, no, I'm holding on to this thing. The little boy goes, I got five loaves, two fish. You can have this, and willingly gives it up for the Messiah, right, for Jesus to take this. And so Andrew shows up with this gift from this boy, the five loaves and two fish, and he asks the question, how far will this go among so many? Sometimes we ask the same question about our own finances, don't we? How far will this go among so many responsibilities that I have? God, there's way more month than I have finances right now. I don't know how this is going to happen. God, help me. So disciples gave to Jesus the little, and they wait for Jesus' action. Jesus takes it. And just a few short words reveals this first principle. It says he looked up to heaven, then he gave thanks, and he broke it. Now, real quick, just for those of you who are sharp-eyed, this is not breakable, right? Fresh fish is, and that's why it's in a package. I didn't want to hold fresh raw fish, okay, for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, it's called sushi, and that's nasty. Um, right, so, so they would dry their fish and so that's how Jesus could break that for those of you who are trying to look for continuity, right? He blessed the little that had been entrusted to him. He blessed the little that was brought to him. He blessed the first that was brought to him. He blessed what had been entrusted to his care. So what's given to the Lord is blessed, which blesses the whole. There's a scripture verse in Romans 11 says this, if the first fruit is holy or the first part is holy, then the rest of it is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. In other words, when that first was given to Jesus and he blessed it and then he broke it, everything else after that point is blessed by him. And that shows up in the gifts that we give to Jesus. When we give those, that first, when we give it to him, he receives it, right? That's what we read in Melchizedek. That's what we read there in Hebrews. He receives that as a gift, and he blesses it. Now, there's more to this multiplication principle, and this is the part that reveals the heart, because this is what's required after blessing. Principle number two, only what is given away can multiply. Only what is given away can multiply. So after the blessing, he tells the disciples to distribute it to the people. Now, the selfish side of the disciples would have said, Jesus, we're hungry too. Right? I mean, they're the ones who've been trying to control the crowd, crying babies, whatever they had to deal with in that moment. They're trying to control it, so they are famished themselves. And they're going, well, if we split this five ways or 12 ways, whatever, we can eat ourselves and be happy. Only that which is given away can multiply. 
Um, and I love it that at the end of the story, it says everybody had eaten and were satisfied, and they still had 12 basketfuls left over. Man, I love that because there's an abundance waiting for us when we trust God with a little, right? When we begin to trust him with those first fruits and trust him with those first gifts, well, when we give the first to Jesus, he blesses it, and out of his blessing, the abundance is experienced. Um, I'm going to read something that Robert Morris wrote in his book, The Blessed Life, uh, out of which we're getting a lot, of, a lot of the material. He says this, if you're not currently tithing, that is certainly the place to start. Now, tithing is the first 10%. That is laid out in the Old Testament. 10% is the tithe. If you earn a dollar, 10 cents of that is God's. And he says, all right, then you get the other 90%. To me, that seems pretty generous. If I was God, I'd be like, hey, I get 90, you get 10, <laughs> right? But God is not that way. He says, and that's certainly the place to start. Tithing is where we remove the curse on our finances. Tithing is what brings the blessing on the balance of our finances. Tithing is what causes God to rebuke the devourer, open the windows of heaven. It is the foundation on which our giving is built. So the tithe is where we begin. And you might say, Pastor Rich, you don't know the expenses that I have that I'm dealing with right now. Medical things, family issues that have come up. We just have no margin whatsoever. Here's my heart in all of this. I believe God wants us to give. And I believe the tithe becomes for us that minimal goal that we give towards and then believe beyond that. And here's what I have seen happen over and over and over again in people's lives who get this right. They start out and they reach the tithe and all of a sudden they realize their 90% is going far more than the 100% ever went and they realize I can give more. And then they start giving over and above that to missions and they give that to, uh, you know, Life Community Center and they give that to other places uh, outside. We're just saying, God, you are so generous to us because we started out giving and trusting you to bless what we're able to bring in this beginning point. And so if you're, if you're in a position right now where you're not giving anything, here's my challenge to you. Begin by giving something. And begin by committing to give something on a regular basis. Next Sunday is going to roll around, and maybe you're going to forget this right now, but hopefully I'll be able to have a chance to remind you about this. But you might right now commit in your heart, I'm going to give five bucks. Praise God for that, right? And then the following week, you're going to say, I'm going to give five bucks. Awesome. A month from now, you're going to say, I'm going to give six bucks. And then that six turns to 50 and that 50 into 100, 100, 120, whatever that is, and you begin to realize that God is blessing you. And here's something I found. I was talking to somebody right after uh, first service, talking about this very idea. And uh, one of the things we came to discover together as we're talking about it, sometimes the blessing of God has found a new discipline in your life. And you stop going to Starbucks. As much as somebody here on staff goes to Starbucks, right? You stop going there because you realize the generosity God's pouring out in your life because of his faithfulness uh, really needs to be returned to the work that God is doing. 
And sometimes it shows up in the way we budget. Sometimes it shows up in the way uh, that we start to structure our lives differently and priorities change. And we realize, God, there's something growing in me and it's generosity. And Lord, I'm so grateful that I started giving because Lord, you're helping me be more generous than I ever thought I could be. Um, how many of you invest, and I know we're, we're kind of out of time here, how many of you invest like 401k, something at work uh, that you've kind of put into there? All right, so that's something I do and have for, for a long time. Um, and if you do and you read the fine print, you're going to see fine print like this. Uh, the performance represented is, is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, right? And then the next one we have here is one, past performance is not indicative of future results. You ever read that before? This is the caveat that protects these investment places. Like when your money goes down the tube when the next crash happens, right? And this is their way to say, uh, we're not responsible for that because bad things can happen. I want to let you know that when it comes to the way that God views blessing, we don't have these caveats with the relationship that we have with God, right? We don't have any of those. What we have is a God who says past performance is indicative of the blessing that he wants to continue to pour out in your life. And this is a promise that we have from him that he's going to take what we give to him, right? That first fruit, that first gift, he's going to bless it. And when we begin to realize that the blessing of God is, is not for us alone, but it's for us to continue to give and to give out, that's when the multiplication begins to happen in our lives. And the multiplication might not show up in finances, by the way. It might show up in new relationships. It might show up in, in uh, prodigal children coming home. It might show up in parents renewing relationship with their children, whatever that is. It's going to show up. That's the principle that when we, uh, when we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. But when we sow generously, we reap generously. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. We pray that today's message is a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.